This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. Uh, we have a lot of catching up to do, uh, given that yours truly was out gallivanting uh, throughout most of the beginning of August. This is where we try and uh, go through the pile of material that accumulates, uh, well, really every week for this program. We just don't have enough time to go through all of it. Let's begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in our case today is August 28th. It was on August 28th in 1837 that pharmacists William Perrins and John Lee of Worcester, England, began the commercial production of what will be called Worcestershire sauce. The popular product is still going strong 171 years later. Here's one I didn't know. On August 28, 1883, American John J. Montgomery made the first controlled flight in a glider. He flew 603 feet at a height of 15 feet at Wheeler Hill, California, and I have no idea where that is. If you know, send us an email at info at radioparallax.com. And it was on August 28, 1986, that convicted Soviet spy and retired U.S. Navy warrant officer Jerry A. Whitworth got sentenced to 365 years in prison. Mr. Whitworth was part of the Walker uh, family of spies, and we talked about his arrest with his arresting FBI officer, an event that took place here in Davis, California, uh, some months back. And we refer you back to our archives if you'd like to get a refresher on those, uh, those curious events surrounding Jerry Wetworth. Today is most famous, perhaps, for the fact that it was 45 years ago today, on August 28th in 1963, that Martin Luther King Jr., speaking to more than 200,000 people during the March on Washington, made his I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in our nation's capital. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. This will be the day, this will be the day when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And our quote of the day comes from Martin Luther King Jr., who once said, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual doom. Quip of the day comes from G.K. Chesterton, who once said, the way to love anything is to realize that it might be lost. Our statistic of the day well, apparently Europe has surpassed the United States as the McDonald's fast food chain's biggest region by revenue. Despite having about a quarter of the number of locations as in the U.S., McDonald's Europe 
earned $8.9 billion last year versus $7.9 here at home. That's according to businessweek.com. And uh, our jokes of the day, which we have several, are some Stephen Wrightish one-liners, such as, if swimming is so good for your figure, how do you explain whales? Or, somebody told me I was gullible, and I believe them. Also, I used to think I was indecisive, but now I'm not so sure. And lastly, all I ask is a chance to prove that money can't make me happy. All right, let's do a little email. We want to thank Ed for the, the comment that we mentioned on last week's program that as far as we knew, Jack Reed was the only American buried in the Kremlin Wall. Well, it turns out that uh, Ed correctly uh, discovered that actually half of the ashes of Big Bill Haywood, who was a uh, president of the, um, the IWW, the International Workers of the World, I believe they were, and I guess he was also president of the Western Federation of Miners, uh, also has at least half of his ashes in the Kremlin Wall. We would again like to refer you to uh, Warren Beatty's excellent Reds, uh, to, if you haven't seen it, and um, suggest also that you should take the time to read John Reed's 10 Days That Shook the World. It is a, a masterpiece of political reporting. And we also had an email that I should touch upon from Don, who took uh, great issue with my uh, assertion on this program that I thought algebra probably ought to just be, like, banned from high school. And, and while I have to admit, algebra is, uh, is important, it's very important to understanding how you can work with various equations, uh, my point is, the way it is taught should be banned, and I'm going to stand by that one. I would like to cite in support of my position, New Scientist Magazine, August 16th issue, interview with, uh, with codebreaker Jacques Stern. Very uh, curious uh, interview discussing matters of encryptation and how that's a part of everyday life. I mean, a generation ago, that was a matter of spies and uh, governments, and now we all need this for electronic transfers of, uh, of money and information. And this very good mathematician, Mr. Stern, noted in the interview when he was asked what attracted him to the field, uh, he replied that, well, mathematicians seek knowledge for its own sake. Some of my math teachers would have been delighted that their theorems were never applied. And yes, while I understand a lot of people do appreciate math for its own sake, those people should not be teaching it. 99.9% .9 of us, or at least maybe 99% of us, need math for its practical applications, not for its own sake. Don said in the email, please don't propagate the myth that math is an undesirable endeavor. And uh, I'm not trying to convey that. I just think that, uh, you know, math is something that needs to be applied. And in my experience, it's often taught as though, it, you know, one should love it for its own sake. And, and you know, frankly, a lot of us don't. But, uh, Don, I thank you for your input. And, 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 and actually, we're, we're not as far apart as, as you might think. But... Uh, but uh, given that we're going to try and teach uh, lunk-headed eighth graders algebra, probably in the same inane fashion that was not taught to the most of us, uh, well, this is not going to go away. We'll, we'll be visiting it again. And uh, a, a bit of correspondence I'd like to cite, which was not sent to Radio Parallax, but actually turned up in the Reykjavik grapevine. I thought this provocative editorial by Alexandra Hertel was uh, worthy of a quote. The authoress noted that she uh, had come to Iceland from a surfer's paradise in the Caribbean, noting that where she came from, all the dangerous beaches have warning signs, which does not prevent tourists from splashing in the seemingly calm waters, only to require rescue or even, res or even worse, resulting in drowning. 
She noted from her personal experience uh, that when she learned of a couple who nearly drowned uh, in Iceland recently, there was a controversy about whether warning signs should be erected. She cited with the Environmental Agency of Iceland. It announced that warnings can be risky because tourists then assume that any place without a sign is safe. It also creates a slippery slope. Once you put up one sign, more will follow, and when will it stop? She noted that as a tourist, you have to be aware that the sublime and pristine nature of Iceland is also volatile and unforgiving. She noted that if Iceland were to put up a warning sign in places that are deemed perilous, most of the country would be dotted with the word danger. She concluded by asking, should all the cliffs where tourists perch on ledges to capture a close-up of puffins have warning signs? This is apparently on the wake of someone she described as foul-mouthed British celebrity chef Gordon Ramsay, who recently almost fell off a cliff while trying, trying to catch puffins. And she concluded by saying, I say no. Well, she may have been, she may have been biased by her dislike of <laughs> foul-mouthed celebrity chef. And I have to confess, I was a little horrified to discover that the Icelanders do eat those cute little puffins. But, uh, but I think we agree with her. Of course, Iceland doesn't have 80% of the world's lawyers, uh, as we do here in America. I also got a, got a laugh out of this same issue, what was, what was described as an Iceland survival guide by author Oder Sturlson. Well, it's pretty grim advice. I think we got issues here about floods. You know, Iceland once in a while has volcanic eruptions. And one of the pieces of advice offered was, try to find refuge near the ocean. Not only will the withering of crops and livestock make fish an invaluable resource, but if by luck a rescue possibility does present itself, You'll be more likely to see it on the horizon than hidden in a cave. Well, good point, Mr. Sturlson. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. It turns out, by the way, we're not, we were not the only ones to note uh, last week's cover of The Week magazine. Uh, Joe Lane also was struck by the picture of Vladimir Putin on the front with a remarkably phallic tank uh, attached to his lower extremities. But at any rate, it was a good week a few weeks back for three-hour tours after Canadian entrepreneur announced that he was almost finished restoring the original SS Minnow seen in the opening of Gilligan's Island as a tourist attraction. And it was a bad week a couple of weeks back for censorship after a federal appeals court threw out a $550,000 fine against CBS for its inadvertent fleeting broadcast of Janet Jackson's bare breast at the 2004 Super Bowl. The FCC said the court acted arbitrarily and capriciously in bringing the hammer down on CBS. And it was kind of an ugly week uh, last week for immigration when People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals uh, announced that they wanted to rent ad space on the controversial U.S.-Mexican border fence. PETA's proposed billboard would depict obese Americans and warn in both English and Spanish that if the Border Patrol doesn't get you, the chicken and burgers will. Go vegan! Apparently, a PETA spokesman said the signs will warn potential illegal immigrants that, quote, if they cross into the U.S., they're putting their health at risk by leaving behind a healthier staple diet of corn tortillas, beans, rice, fruits, and vegetables, unquote. 
And we should tack on a bonus statistic, which uh, really struck me, that uh, a recent study noted that apparently if uh, you if you indulge in two extra crispy chicken pieces from Kentucky Fried Chicken, then in order to burn off the calories in those uh, greasy uh, pieces of chicken flesh, you would have to climb the stairway to the top of the Empire State Building. Twice. Something to think about at dinner time. This might be a good time to hear from our old pal, America's foremost political comic, Mr. Will Durst. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I want to talk about why half the Democratic Party was turning blue. It wasn't the altitude, it was from holding their breath for fear of what the woman who never really stopped running for president, even when confronted with the inevitability of simple math, would say up on that Denver podium. Funny things can happen when you give a torch to a woman scorned. Not all of them good. Especially a woman burned by two philandering pretty boy Democrats who was now being asked to swallow her flame of ambition center stage in front of the entire country. What's that old adage? Never get in a match-throwing contest while standing in a pool full of crude? She could have used that torch to burn down the whole house with everyone still in it. Or shove it up someone's gas tank. Or rally the villagers with it while passing out pitchforks to storm the gleaming city on the hill. So the assembled masses breathed a sigh of relief when the blaze-orange pantsuited woman in question didn't just pass the torch, but lit it with the white-hot passion of her 18 million ceiling crackers. That sigh of relief was especially loud in Billings, Montana, where the guy who's going to speak on Thursday watched as well. The biggest question rolling through the Pepsi Center was, why didn't she give this speech before? Maybe she'll have a chance to give it again in eight or even four years. But for now, the Denver visitors just hope that since the torch has been passed, the guy taking it up grabs the right end, the one on top. The unspoken sentiment around here is he and his party might want to put some of that heat in their belly. As Hillary might say, it takes a bonfire. <laughs> for Radio Parallax, I'm Will Durst. Yes, and speaking of the convention, uh, we haven't said a word yet on this program about Barack Obama's choice of Joe Biden as his vice presidential uh, running mate. Well, it's, uh, it's clear that Obama wanted to go white and male. And uh, I guess he could have done worse. We can only hope at this point that uh, John McCain chooses somebody really bad. But then again, there's, there's really an example of how you need to be careful of what you wish for. So how are we doing on time? 15 minutes in. Okay, uh, let's, let's do a few more miscellaneous uh, news items. How about this one? According to an article in uh, Mother Jones uh, uh, last week, the National Rifle Association used a mole to infiltrate pro-gun control groups and learn their tactics and strategies. Mary McFate, also known as Mary Lou Sapone, was reportedly sent by the NRA to join groups such as Ceasefire PA, a Pennsylvania gun control group, and the Brady Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence. She lobbied in Washington for gun control legislation and regularly sat in on high-level strategy sessions. She had access to all the legislative strategy for every major issue for years, said gun control activist Kristen Rand. 
According to a deposition by a former business associate, McFate reported what she learned at the meetings to Patrick O'Malley, a high-ranking official with the NRA's lobbying unit. The NRA had no comment. And in some follow-up on this issue of how Bruce E. Ivins, uh, the Ph.D. who worked with uh, bioweapons, has now been supposedly uh, wrapped up as the man who was responsible for mailing those anthrax letters. Remains a rather strange case. Uh, Gabriel Schoenfeld, writing in the L.A. Times, called it a monumental screw-up, noting that if Ivins, the prime suspect, was directly under the FBI's nose for years, uh, uh, how was it the Bureau wasted its time hounding Stephen Hatfill, who was Ivins's Fort Detrick biowarfare colleague? A couple months back, Hatfill, his reputation uh, and career wrecked, was effectively exonerated when he reached a $5.8 million settlement with the federal government. As Schoenfeld, given the FBI's seven-year-long history of botching this case, how can anyone be sure they've got it right now? Peter Canellos, writing in the Boston Globe, said if Ivins was the culprit, he did worse than kill five people. He also helped the Bush administration make, it, make its case for toppling Saddam Hussein. When the anthrax attacks occurred, Iraq was immediately fingered by many neoconservative hawks as a possible source. ABC News uh, quoted unnamed government sources saying that the anthrax contained bentonite, an additive only Iraq used in its biological weapons. Later on, though, it emerged that no tests found or even suggested the presence of bentonite. Glenn Greenwald notes in Salon.com that, uh, well, obviously someone in the U.S. government was deliberately leaking bad information to ABC that made it appear that Saddam and Iraq posed grave as existential threats to this country. The question is, did Ivins himself plant the bogus story to draw suspicion away from him, or was the Bush administration the source as it built support for the war that the neocons wanted so badly? Under Greenwald, the death of Bruce Ivins raises far more questions than it answers. And in view of that, Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa is calling for a full and thorough vetting of the claims now being made about uh, Dr. Ivins. Grassley noted that more than 100 people had access to the flask of anthrax spores that the FBI says genetically matched the spores used in the attacks. He also wants to know uh, why the records of late-night work in Ivins' lab did not focus the investigation on him earlier. Anyway, uh, yes, curious story. And having just been to Norway and Iceland, this item caught my attention. Uh, Four decades after hunting them was banned, Humpback whales seem to have uh, swum clear of extinction. At one point, uh, they were down to about 1,500 whales, and now they're back up to apparently 40,000 mature adults, which unfortunately uh, has Japan, Iceland, and Norway thinking it might be time to start hunting them again. Spokesman for Greenpeace notes that commercial hunting should definitely not be allowed. And uh, here's a couple tips for you. I don't don't know whether any of you still go and fill up your car with uh, premium gas. Hopefully none of you do. So we'd like to remind you that all cars sold in America at present need to be able to run on the cheap stuff. So please don't give any more money to the oil companies when you don't need to. We also want to note that they're talking about how the 21st century water is going to be as important as oil was in the 20th century. And uh, a review of the book Bottle Mania, How Water Went for Sale and Why We Bought It by Elizabeth Reut in The Economist was interesting. According to the author, in the year 2002, Nestle produced a training manual aimed at waiters called Pour on the Tips. Converting guests to pricey bottled water, it said, could boost their monthly earnings by $100 or more. Some waiters even try to humiliate people who resist. I get great pleasure out of making each of those ladies who are trying to impress their friends repeat the word tap 
back to me. He wrote a server on the Wager's Revenge, an offline message board. And yes, there is no doubt we've gone nuts for bottled water. A bottled water that, you know, that's generating huge amounts of uh, plastic bottles as waste. But uh, apparently, uh, this is a shock, in Fiji, the place that sends us all those bottles of Fiji water, half of the inhabitants do not have access to clean water last year. Meanwhile, their water bottler does play an important part in the local economy. Personally, we think the answer may be to, uh, to recycle water, uh, as it were, by using either a glass or metal container. And as far as the product itself goes, well, I have to say, it generally does taste better. Of course, that depends on whether you're drinking in a place like Davis, famous for its poor water quality, or up in the Sierra, where the stuff coming out of the tap in Tahoe is a lot better than what you can basically buy in a bottle. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for lots of science and current events. All day I face the barren waste without the taste of water. Cool water. Old Dan and I with throats burned dry and souls that cry for water. The nights are cool and I'm a fool Each star's a pool of water 